Well, go ahead and uh, stand with me and turn to Matthew chapter 4, our scripture reading for this morning. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. This is God's word. And please be seated. Go ahead and keep your your Bibles out uh, and turned open to Matthew 4. The temptation of Jesus. We all face temptations in countless ways. Uh, The urge, the desire to do something... uh, that we know we shouldn't do or to say something that we know we shouldn't say. Uh, Temptations to hurt or to betray those closest to us, to break trust. Temptations to be selfish when the baby needs a diaper change and I all of a sudden find myself busy doing something else and unavailable. Temptations to to take advantage of others, to to promote self, to to cheat the system. Temptations ultimately to disobey God, our Creator and our King. Another way to think about temptation is to ask, what's the price of my loyalty? What's the price of my loyalty? How much is my obedience or my trust worth? What am I willing to sell it for? In the 1993 film, Indecent Proposal, a wealthy man offers to pay a young couple $1 million if the wife will commit adultery with him just for one night. I haven't actually seen the film, but the story follows this couple's wrestling with whether or not to accept this man's indecent proposal. I mean, the title of the film acknowledges the immorality of the request. And yet the whole thing is about them entertaining it. What's the price of loyalty? Is it worth breaking loyalty for a million dollars? What's the price of loyalty in our marriages, in our friendships? What's the price of our loyalty to God? How much are we willing to sell it for? The reality is the price tag for most of us is way less than a million dollars. There are days as a father of four children where I'm tempted to sell my loyalty to God for a decent night's sleep. And we, you know, for most of us, loyalty is pretty cheap. 
Trust is pretty cheap. Obedience is even cheaper. How little it takes for us to to disobey our parents, for instance, not even think about it, to disregard the rules at school, uh, the policies of our employer, the laws of our nation. How little it takes for us to choose self over God. We are a people easily tempted and given to sin. So it is when we come to the Gospel of Matthew that we see Jesus presented to us as a Savior and King whose first public act of ministry was to identify with unworthy sinners. Sinners in need of repentance. Identifying with them through a baptism of repentance with his people. He associated himself with sinful humans that he might stand in our place and bring us back to God. That's what we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. And the climax of that passage was the Father's announcement that Jesus, unlike Adam and unlike ancient Israel and very much unlike us, was God's faithful Son. He was the Son who would fulfill all God's righteous purposes in redeeming sinners and establishing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, last week we got a little bit out of order through the story of Matthew due to a snowstorm a couple weeks ago. And so, uh, last week, Rich Forson walked us through the passage that actually follows from the story we're looking at this morning, chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. And he showed us how Jesus brings God's kingdom to earth in a practical way through his willing subjection to the Father. His willing submission to the Father. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is at hand. And he's come in faithfulness and obedience, beginning to bring the rule and reign of heaven to earth. Our passage this morning, 4, 1 through 11, sets that story up and flows directly out of what we saw two weeks ago, particularly God's announcement in 3.17. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now, when we come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, notice how the focus on Jesus' identity as God's Son carries on. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. If you are the Son of God, we just heard God the Father announce that. Now, here's the challenge. If you are the Son of God, and again, chapter 4, verse 6. If you are the Son of God, the focus, the question here is on Jesus' identity as God's Son and what He's going to do with that. So why? Why that question? Why does the devil aim his temptation at Jesus' identity as son? If you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, we mentioned that Jesus is not the first person to be called God's son in Scripture. Adam is depicted as God's son in the garden and is explicitly called that in Luke 3.38. Israel is called God's son in Exodus 4.22 and elsewhere. But shortly after both of those characters were identified as God's son, his children, each of them faced a test. Adam was tempted in the garden by the serpent. Israel 
was tested in the wilderness through hunger and thirst. And the question before them was the same. Will they trust the Father and obey His voice, remaining loyal to Him, or will they place self above God and disregard His word? And both sons failed the test. So, when we hear God's announcement in 3.17, this is my son. And, and then we see the son headed into the wilderness to be tested in 4.1. We have to be asking the question, so how will this son do? How will he do? Will he be the faithful son God is calling him to be and establish God's kingdom? Will he live up to his identity or will he fail like the other sons? That's the question. So let's pray and see what happens. Lord, we do thank you that you've given us your word and that your word reveals to us your son. Show us Jesus more clearly this morning. Show us the hope we have in him. In his name, amen. Well, the passage uh, that we've got is three parts. And each part includes a test, a temptation that the Son of God must face. But why is he being tested? I think we have to start with that question. Why test the Son of God? Look at verse 1 with me. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So verse 1 tells us that these tests, as one author puts it, are God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. Not God so, God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. In other words, notice how Jesus is led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the desert for 40 days in order to be tempted, to be tested, just like Israel of old, whom God led, Deuteronomy 8 tells us, all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And so God tests his son. Now, it's easy to think, okay, Jesus is God. He's not really going to have any problem with this test. He's fully God. And he is. He's fully God. But he's also fully human. And he has to be fully human if he is to be our representative and stand in the place of unworthy sinners. And so with respect to his humanity, Jesus, Hebrews tells us, was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So God ordains this temptation to prove to all that Jesus is the faithful son. But while God ordains it, he does not himself inflict it. Rather, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As God's ancient plan of salvation reaches its climax and begins to unfold, his ancient foe shows up on the scene, whom Revelation 12 identifies as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He shows up. And God permits it. 
God allows Satan to come and test, tempt his son. Like Job in the Old Testament, God allows Satan to tempt Jesus. And that might seem like a trivial point, that, that it's God-ordained but not God-inflicted, but it's pretty important because Scripture tells us God does not tempt anyone in James 1. However, he does permit the evil one, Satan, to tempt his people, but never beyond what they can bear, according to 1 Corinthians 10. Satan does not have free reign. He is an evil adversary. He is dangerous, but he is not of unlimited power. He does not have free reign. He can do nothing without God's permission. And in his inscrutable wisdom, God works everything for our good and his glory, even through the temptations that come from the evil one. And so he ordains that his son Jesus be tempted by the devil and so prove his faithfulness as God's son. So let's look at the actual tests, the three tests. And we find the first test in verses 2 through 4. And this is a test of obedience. A test of obedience. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice again how the devil frames this temptation, if you are the Son of God. And the challenge here is not so much the question of whether or not that's true. Rather, it's a temptation for Jesus to abuse his sonship and put self above God. The the grammar in the original is a little bit more like, since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Abuse your identity as son. But then you ask, what's the big deal with turning stones into bread? Jesus turned water into wine. Why can't he turn stones into bread? I mean, he's hungry. He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. What's the big deal with you know, snapping his fingers and you know, conjuring up a nice juicy steak or something like that? Well, that would defeat the whole purpose of what he's in the wilderness to do in his fasting. Fasting is a ritual of denying oneself food or something else as a tangible act of dependence on God. A dependence that's expressed in obedience. Now, we're currently in the season of Lent in the church calendar, which is a season of fasting. Uh, We often say no to something that we're used to or even dependent on, in order to learn dependence on God, in order to come before Him in humble submission and repentance. As a church, we've invited uh, everyone to express our dependence on God through a special prayer focus during this Lenten season. But the whole purpose of a fast is to learn dependence, full dependence on God. So Satan's temptation is for Jesus to depend on himself rather than his father. To take matters into his own hands and use his power as God's son for selfish purposes. He comes and he says, feed that empty stomach. 
You don't need your father. Forget about his will. Satisfy your own needs. That's Satan's temptation. And in so many ways, this is an echo of the garden. You think back to Adam and Eve. What they needed was not the fruit on the tree, the one tree that was off limits. What they needed was their father and his word to rule and guide them and protect them. But instead, they took matters into their own hands. And instead of finding the life and wisdom they were looking for, they found death instead. This is a temptation we're all very familiar with. To depend on ourselves instead of God, instead of the Father in heaven. And so to obey ourselves instead of God and his word. You know, the two places where I see this come up in my own life, or my prayer life and my time in God's word. You know, I, I find myself in my prayer life. And, and am I really praying like I need God? Or am I kind of going through life saying, you know, I got this. I can do this. And then when something happens, then I pray. But otherwise, I don't really pray like I really need him. Or my time in the word. Do I really believe that that knowing and obeying this book is necessary for life. Do I really believe that? And does that show in my habits and in the kind of time I spend in it with God, communing with Him? Or do I treat the Bible kind of like, like a teenager treats the evening news? You know? you know, there's probably something important being said there, but it's easier to hit mute or change the channel, do something else. We are all tempted to try and live life on our own terms. But notice how Jesus responds to this temptation. In fact, notice how he responds to all three temptations. By going to God's word. He quotes scripture to Satan. Not only that, he quotes a passage of scripture that speaks directly to the temptation that he was facing. Again, in in Deuteronomy 8... Moses is recounting to Israel how they were tested in the wilderness with hunger to see whether or not they would depend on God and obey his word. And so Moses says in Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, as miraculous bread that shows up, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Obedience to God's word. Those words, Deuteronomy 8.3, are the very words that Jesus quotes to Satan. As he relives Israel's story, he comes out of Egypt in Matthew 2. He goes through the waters of baptism, just like Israel comes through the Red Sea in chapter 3, and now into the wilderness for testing. Jesus passes the test that Israel failed. Jesus is stronger than the devil. He's stronger. He resists the temptation because he knows that obedience to God and his word is more important for life than food or drink or anything else. He depends on his father. Jesus is the faithful son who obeys his father's word even amid great affliction. He's the faithful son. So test number one, 
to pass. Let's go to test number two. And the second test is one of trust. It's a test of trust. We read it in verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. and They will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So since Jesus wants to depend so deeply on God's word, Satan tries a new angle. And he uses God's word in order to try and tempt Jesus to sin. To abuse his status as God's son, this time by testing the father's commitment to the son against his promise of protection. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle, the high point of the temple in Jerusalem, and quotes to him Psalm 91. If you read that psalm, it is a beautiful psalm of God's promise of protection. God is our refuge, as we sang earlier. And so Satan says to him, well, if you're the son of God, then surely God's going to keep his promise. He'll command his angels. They'll guard you in all your ways. So why don't you find out whether or not the father plans to keep his word? Go ahead and jump. Let's test the father's commitment to protect his children. The devil is tempting Jesus to doubt his father's commitment. To doubt his father's commitment to protect him. And so to run a little experiment and test him. See whether or not he'll do it. This is a test of trust. Will Jesus trust the Father in his promise or not? And again, we are no stranger to that temptation. Where are you? Just think in your own heart. Where are you tempted not to trust God? What is it that triggers that in your life? Where do you find yourself wanting proof of his goodness before you step out in faith. Some sign of God's favor so that you know you're not wasting your time waiting on him instead of taking things into your own hands. When ancient Israel was in the desert, they faced this test as well. Uh, They had just come out of Egypt. They just passed miraculously through the Red Sea, witnessing with their own eyes the glory of God in saving them and judging Israel, or excuse me, judging Egypt. But just a short way into the wilderness, they find themselves facing thirst. They're thirsty. It's hot, you know. Come on. Exodus 17 tells us how they grumbled and quarreled with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? They just saw God defeat the armies of Egypt. Why, God, are you making us thirsty? They did not trust God to make good on his promises. They doubted his goodness. In his mercy, God provided water for his people. And that story. But, verse 7, he called that place Massa and Meribah, Hebrew words meaning quarreling and testing, Because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Listen to that question. Is the Lord among us or not? 
Does he really care? Is he really with us? Those are the doubts that Satan wants Jesus to buy into in the wilderness. The same doubts he wants us to believe. Can we really trust God? So how does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy again, this time from chapter 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Jesus knows the lesson that Israel failed to learn. He trusts the Father, which ironically is the very point of Psalm 91, the psalm that Satan was quoting to him and trying to misapply. The whole point of that psalm is that we can trust the Father to be our refuge. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Jesus is stronger than the devil. He's stronger than his temptations. He is the faithful son who trusts the father without having to put him to the test. So test number two is a pass. Let's go to test number three. So far, Jesus is the faithful son who obeys his father's word, even amid affliction. The faithful son who trusts the father without having to put him to the test Now, in verses 8 through 11, we see the third test, and this is a test of loyalty. It's a test of loyalty. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, their glory. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, be gone. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So again, we have a scene change. We've moved from wilderness to temple. Now we're to some very high mountain somewhere where Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. No clue how he did that. Um, whether it was some kind of vision type thing or, you know, uh, no idea. And you even have to wonder about the legitimacy of Satan's offer. I mean, he's Satan. Can he really offer all of the kingdoms and all of the glory uh, to the Son? Or is he just acting in character and lying to him and deceiving? Personally, I think there's very real weight to this temptation. I don't think this is just a, uh, you know, a throwaway. There's very real weight. Elsewhere, Satan is called the god of this world or the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. And so here, he puts his best offer on the table before Jesus. He goes all in. And he asks him, what's the price of your loyalty? How much are you willing to sell it for? If you worship me, All the kingdoms, all the glory will be yours. If you worship the Father, you know where that's headed. To the cross. I can give you what you want without the pain, without the suffering. If you'll fall down and worship me. If we think back to the Father's announcement in chapter 3, verse 17... And the Old Testament passages that were being echoed there. 
Satan is offering Jesus the inheritance of Psalm 2, the nations, without the pain of Isaiah 53. A kingdom without a cross. That's the ultimate test. What's the price of his loyalty? Again, we ask, what's our price? How much are we willing to sell our loyalty for? Especially when suffering is on the line. You know, the, the instinct of self-preservation is so strong. And we will do anything to avoid suffering. The idea of denying ourselves of something we might want or enjoy, the idea of willingly laying our lives down for someone, those are not natural for us. When it comes to the prospect of being ridiculed or persecuted because of our association with Jesus, we are all in our hearts like Peter on the night of Jesus' trial. We talk a big game, but as soon as the heat comes, we're looking for the exit. I swear I don't know the man. So how does Jesus respond? The test of his loyalty. The opportunity to get everything he's been promised without the cost. Once again, he goes to the word. And once again, he succeeds where Israel failed. Jesus is stronger than the devil. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses warns the people that when they finally enter the land and they receive the promised blessings of God's covenant, large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, the kingdom and the glory, Moses warns them that when they inherit that, not to forget the Lord who brought them out of Egypt and not to follow other gods, the gods of the nations around them. He says instead in Deuteronomy 6.13, Fear the Lord your God and serve Him only and take your oaths in His name. That's the verse Jesus quotes to Satan. Where Israel fails, Jesus, the faithful son, succeeds. His loyalty rests squarely with the Father. So he can say, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus is greater than the devil. He passes the third test. Satan departs. The angels of God come and minister to him. He is the faithful son who is loyal to his father even if it means laying his life down on the cross. And that's where the story's going, to the cross. The third test is one that Jesus will have to face again. Because the ultimate expression of his obedience, of his trust, of his loyalty as God's faithful son will be his willing sacrifice on the cross. In another garden, Jesus will wrestle with this temptation one more time to put self above God, to take matters into his own hands, his own will, to doubt the goodness of his Father and to avoid the suffering of the cross. But unlike Adam, 
who failed in the first garden. Unlike Israel who failed in the desert. And unlike you and me who fail in our own unique ways. Jesus passes the greatest and the final test. He's the faithful son. He prays to his father, not my will, but your will be done. He obeys, he trusts, he remains loyal. And through his obedience, he gives his righteous life for our unrighteous lives. On the cross, he defeats Satan and disarms evil. He pays the debt we owe for our own sinful rebellion. And through his resurrection, he destroys the power of death. Jesus is the faithful son, the true king and suffering servant. And through faith in him, we can become and live as faithful children. One of the temptations, if you will, when we study a passage like this, is to turn this story into three lessons for resisting temptation. Jesus memorized scripture and he didn't sin. So if you memorize scripture, you won't sin either. Now, of course, hiding God's word in our hearts helps us battle sin. That's what Psalm 119, 9 through 11 tell us. It's a good thing. We need to live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But if that's all we do with this passage, say, you know, read the Bible and memorize it, and you can defeat sin too, then we're putting all the weight of victory on ourselves. You know how that's going to end? Same way it ended for Israel. Same way it ended for Adam. There's only one hero in this story. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. He's the one who's stronger than the devil. He's the one who does what we can't do. And it's only when we come to him through faith that this passage then becomes a model for us for our own obedience. Only when we first acknowledge our weakness and our disobedience and our utter dependence on Christ are we able to follow his example of obeying the Father and living according to God's word. Because only through faith in Jesus are we cleansed of our sin and given God's spirit, which enables us to walk in obedience. And walk in obedience we must. Jesus calls us to obedience. Being saved by grace is not permission to sin. It's power to obey. Having withstood the devil's temptation, Jesus goes public in the rest of chapter 4. In 4.17, he says, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a call to turn away from sin and to follow the king. In 4.19, he calls his first disciples, Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We are called to follow the faithful son as faithful children of God, as disciples of Jesus, living under God's reign and rule, which means resisting the temptation of the devil. 
just like our king. I read this week, um, and if you journey to the castle of Wartburg today in Germany, the place where Martin Luther hid for a time when people were seeking his life, this Martin Luther who wrote the words of the hymn we sang earlier, Mighty Fortress is Our God, you would see on the wall in that castle, in that room, in which he, say, he stayed, a dark ink stain. It's from his temptations. In Luther's solitude, loneliness and spiritual hunger, when the devil would tempt him, Luther would resist by throwing his ink pot at him. Now, I'm not exactly suggesting that's how we resist. But do we take sin seriously? Do we resist? Do we fight against the devil's temptation? That ink stain is a memorial of that man's desire to obey the Father. And the hope that we have for resisting temptation and living according to God's word is found only in Jesus, God's faithful son, who's both the power and the pattern for our obedience.